0: Good morning. Happy Father's Day. It is, yeah, you're about to be. Uh, It is exciting to be together and to spend time in God's Word and worship Him in spirit and in truth this morning. So we're going to continue our study of the book of John. And we're in a series called, In Jesus' Name, Amen. And so today, for those of you who really want to know what the name of the sermon is, because on the back of your bulletin, there's kind of choose your own adventure, or fill in your own DIY kind of bulletin. It's called, Entrusting Yourself to Jesus. Entrusting Yourself to Jesus. We've been teaching through the book of John. And where we found ourselves today is chapter 8, which we've been in for a little while. And Jesus is speaking in the temple courts at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, where Jesus has come. He's made a very public statement about himself in a very public place, and he said that he is the light of the world. He's implied that he is the Messiah that the Old Testament speaks about. And you have a lot of people within the crowd taking notice of this makeshift rabbi, if you will. And he also had the teachers of the law, not just the crowd, but the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, who wanted to entrap Jesus. They wanted to find fault in him, either in his words or in his actions. And so where we begin today, we will see Jesus not holding back verbally at all and making clear he knows where the Pharisees have missed it. One of the things that I don't think people are told when they get into ministry, if that's in a paid position or if that's in some type of leadership within a church, one thing I don't think we're told about is all the hard conversations that we're going to go through pretty much on the daily. Every day there is someone looking for something, wanting something, wanting to argue about something, or in some cases, just wanting to understand something. The difficult part is deciphering the difference of what type of conversation you're about to have with someone. One thing I know is that those conversations, the difficult ones that we have to go through, take a toll on leaders in particular, especially those whose ministry are the people. Jesus constantly had difficult conversations throughout his ministry. And one of the many things that Jesus has that you and I don't have is he knows the hearts of man. In John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, the word of God says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Because Jesus knows the heart, church, because he knows where people stand, he knows what they believe. When someone comes to him to argue or maybe to understand something, he knows exactly where they're coming from and he knows exactly where to speak into their life. So what we will see today is this continued difficult conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees who had confronted Jesus while speaking in the temple courts at the Feast of Tabernacles. So here we go, verse 21. Once more... Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. He's not holding back now. Jesus knows the hearts of men, and so he tells them that he is headed somewhere they cannot go. Now, I read before, and I read ahead, and I know for a fact that these Pharisees are gonna think of the literal and the physical. They're not gonna hear the spiritual that Jesus is bringing, but just for a moment, Think about the audacity of Jesus to say, you can't go where I'm going. He doesn't just believe this about these Pharisees. He knows this. They cannot go where he is going. Jesus says he's going away. The implication is heaven, that he is going back to where he came from, but those he is speaking directly to cannot go where he is going. Why? It's because of where they stand with Jesus. And I want us to think applicably, where do we stand with Jesus? See, these people, they love their sin more than they love the Son. That's where their focus was. It was on their sin. It was more about them self-justifying rather than being justified by Christ. That's what they were focused on. To die in your sin doesn't mean that your sins outnumber your good deeds, because your sins always outnumber your good deeds. But that their sin—the the the fact that they were putting their identity in doing things that were not God's ideal— their sin was more attractive and more satisfying to them than the Son of God could be to them, because they were blinded in their transgressions and sins. Jesus is available for any and all who hear the gospel. That's good news. He is available to a world that is in darkness, but not only in darkness, as we studied last week, is in darkness and is blind. He is the light of the world, and he provides the eyes to see the spiritual realm, but most refuse to entrust themselves to him out of a nature of pride that would rather work for their salvation than depend on salvation that could come through him. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's Revelation, no S at the end, just for anyone who says it that way. And it is the last book in the Bible, and it speaks of the end of time, while beginning with Jesus having some very frank and hard words for churches that claim Christ, but they choose to make it about anything but the goodness of the gospel personified in Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to a church in Laodicea, who he calls neither hot nor cold, but he calls them lukewarm. Any ever had lukewarm water? It's not that good. And this is an interesting address. He is speaking to a church that has started to go through the motions, who has stopped worshiping in spirit and in truth. They have replaced their spirit-led devotion with generic agnosticism towards a God who is worthy of all honor and praise. So Jesus says these words, that are not for the pagan who wants nothing to do with God, but for the one who had their heart hardened from not obeying the truth and has kind of fallen away from really loving Jesus. Here are the words that he says. They're actually very encouraging. He says, Here I am, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Contrast that with what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You will die in your sins. You cannot go where I am going. And these words that he speaks in Revelation, they signify the return of someone who is loved, someone who has come back, and there is great joy. But Jesus isn't speaking these type of words to the Pharisees. These were not the people who had loved him and then left These were people who attempted to justify themselves by how good that they were rather than remember and understand how beautiful the love of the Lord is. These Pharisees who had heard these harsh words from Jesus, they believed that they were reverent, that they were doing what they were supposed to do by being defenders of the Scriptures while justifying themselves in their own interpretation I wonder how many of us think that we've walked away from the faith. I wonder how many of us think we've walked away from the faith when really we never actually had faith in Jesus. We've never entrusted ourselves to him. We once were passionate about what we thought was God, and it turns out we were passionate about how being around the church made us feel or how we can feel good about ourselves based on how we thought we kept the rules of our religion rather than relied on our relationship with Jesus as our sole means of identity. That's what it means to be a Christian. You rely on the Lord, you rely on Jesus, and he is your sole means of identity. Who are you? You are a sinner saved by grace, by Jesus Christ. That's who we are when we become a Christian. So this is what the gospel does. It points us to our identity this is what jesus does when we believe in him we have a relationship with him and the great preacher from the east coast tim keller says it this way the gospel is this we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in jesus christ than we ever dare hoped That's what it means to understand the gospel, that we are broken, yet he can change us. He can transform us. I cannot stress enough, and we say this a lot, but I cannot stress enough how little we actually bring to God in our salvation other than a propensity to sin. He decides to make known his goodness by saving sinners like you and I. And when we grasp that we didn't do it, We didn't earn it, we didn't attain it, and we can't even keep it based on our own work. We then understand the love that is manifested by the cross, by Jesus shedding his blood so that you and I could be made right before a holy and perfect God. This is good news. So, how did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' words that they will die in their sin and where he is going, they cannot come? Here's what it says, verse 22 This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? No. Jesus is not implying suicide in this moment. He is implying that heaven is not where they are headed because they are dead in their sin. Without any hope of a life preserver because they want to justify themselves. Do you know that a lot of times when we think we're quoting scripture, we're actually quoting Benjamin Franklin? Has anyone ever done this? Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, God only helps those who attempt to help themselves. Well, Benjamin Franklin's theology was terrible. All right, I'm going to start there. But I'd respond with this. God doesn't save those who are attempting to save themselves. If you're trying to do it based on your own work, on your own effort, it is worthless. But God comes and saves those who let go and allow God to be who he is in their lives. Verse 23, but he continued. <laughs> You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Well, I've, I used to own the T-shirt that said not of this world, so I remember these words. But what he's saying is pretty rancid to these people. He's telling them, you do not get it. You do not understand. You are from below. You are not from where I'm from. And you are not going where I am going. You are of the world And the world is what you strive to be included in and loved by, because the world is what you love and all that you understand. These are harsh words that Jesus speaks to these people, but he's saying this for their benefit, and he's saying this for our benefit so we would understand that if we're of this world, we've missed it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in chapter 4, verse 4 of his epistle, his letter, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James, the brother of Jesus, says that to identify yourself with this world... Rather than to identify yourself with Jesus, is to miss the point and relationship with God that we've entrusted ourselves to, that we have committed to. And Jesus says he is not of this world. And when we are adopted by grace into his family, we too are no longer of this world. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are in the world, but the world isn't in us. Our boat is on the water, but we don't let the water get into our boat. Do you know what I'm saying? You and I get to live in a world where the gospel has taken hold of who you and I are. It has infected our worldview. It has changed how we live, how we act, and how we see the world around us. We get to influence the world around us while protecting ourselves from allowing the world to influence us. Now, what I'm not saying is that we must all wear long dresses, be Amish, and stay inside at all times. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that once you've been redeemed by God through the grace and truth of the gospel in the work and person of Jesus Christ, we don't want to live our lives for ourselves anymore. But we get to live our lives for the glory of the name of Jesus as he grows and transforms us more into the image of himself. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, this is plural, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. He starts with, You will die in your sin. It was singular, and now it is plural. It means the same thing. The emphasis is death from either one sin or from a million sins. The fact is that we sin against a holy and perfect God, but the point is that death is inevitable. For who? For those who do not believe that I am He, he says. He who? See, the I am is emphatic. That's the emphasis because he is the I am. The term that God used for himself in discussion with Moses in the book of Exodus, the Old Testament, Moses was speaking to God, there was a burning bush. Anyone remember this story? And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14 Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? And what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. So when Jesus says, I am he, the emphasis is that he is the same who, the same I am from the Old Testament. So the point Jesus makes, and the point I don't want any of us to miss, is that believing that Jesus is he, that he is the I am, that he is the bread of life that brings satisfaction to our spiritual hunger. He is the light of the world that brings light to the darkness, but to believe does not mean that you just subscribe to or agree with or even acknowledge. Here's what believe means. It means to entrust yourself. That's what belief means. We talk about belief a lot, and a lot of times we're like, well, I believe that, you know, I'll get to drive my car tomorrow, and I believe in Jesus. And we use the same word. It's not the same word. To believe in Jesus means I entrust myself to it, that there's an action attached to it, that I have faith that God is who he says that he is, and because of that, I get to be who he says that I am, which is forgiven. So we shouldn't just assume that he means that when we say we believe in Jesus, we acknowledge his existence, but we entrust ourselves into the care and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, you will indeed die in your sins unless you entrust yourself to me, unless you believe that I am he. When I first became a Christian, I was always just told, well, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, And even back then, that didn't make that much sense to me. I don't really think that actually made a lick of sense because to acknowledge that God exists didn't seem to be what the Bible implied, even though most acted as if that's all that it took. People would attend a church on Christmas or Easter, we call you guys Christers, and they would pay homage to a God they didn't trust, but would assume relationship because of some minuscule amount of effort had become the cultural norm for Christianity. Church, I'm here to tell you that you too will die in your sin if all your belief, with all the belief that you have carries no trust at all. You will die in your sin. To acknowledge but not bow down is not a biblical belief. Let me say that again. To acknowledge but not bow down is not a biblical belief. This has to do with a posture of the heart that says that he is Lord and that we are not. So trusting him as Lord makes him not only a Lord but your Lord. That you find your identity and your purpose in him alone. The theologian Martin Luther said it this way, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first, only the true Christian alone can say the second. So is he your Lord? Or do you pay homage to him once a week? I hate that many of us choose our sin over the son of God, Because the former seems more attractive, more fulfilling, more gratifying. But it's like popcorn. You ever eat popcorn for a meal? It will always leave us hungry. It will always leave us malnourished. And eventually we will die if we rely on our sin to satisfy rather than the God who loves you. The God who sent his son to live among you the God who sent his son to physically go to a cross and rise from the dead so that you could know God personally, your sin will never satisfy. I want to implore you, as the pastor, one of the pastors of this church, as, as one of the teachers of this church, as an evangelist, but most importantly, as a lover of Jesus, I want to implore you, repent. Change direction. You're like, oh, he's not talking about me. Yes, I am. Repent. Change direction, bow your heart, humble yourself, and make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's what the world needs. Not more lessons, not more Greek language, not more Hebrew language, not more uh, pious work. What the world needs is people that bow themselves down to Jesus Christ. So I'm not here to scare you into heaven, but to point you to the joy that comes from letting go and allowing God to be the master of your life, it pales in comparison to any substance or created thing that may chase for your satisfaction, that may argue with you, may, may you think in the moment fulfill you. There is nothing that's been created that can satisfy, only Jesus can. Verse 25 Who are you? They asked. At this point, Jesus has had some really harsh words for the self righteous teachers. They seem to be asking him, who made you king? <laughs> Jesus is like, my dad. <laughs> but they're wanting him to show his credentials because he's so forthright. They seem to wonder who he thought that he was. But before we see his response, I love questions in the Bible. If you look at one of my older Bibles, I just underline every question that I see in the Bible because I always wanna wrestle with them. I feed off the questions in the Bible. So here's my question. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? I don't know if there's a more important question when it comes to your eternity and even your life today. I don't know if there is any question being answered that will have greater impact on who you are than who is Jesus to you. For a moment, think about what you know about this Jesus. Think about what he says about himself. Think about what he says about the world and what his apostles and the followers have said about him and what this world attempts to convince you of who he is. See, in Matthew chapter 16, the disciples, the people following Jesus, were asked this specific question. It says in Matthew 16, verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? This was to the disciples, and Peter decided to speak up. Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter and the disciples didn't just acknowledge this. They entrusted themselves to the fact that Jesus is who the Hebrew Scriptures talked about. That their Bible, the Old Testament for us, they didn't have the New Testament. They were living the New Testament out in this moment. All of the Old Testament focused on Jesus. And they saw it and they followed him because of it. See, obedience is difficult. Did you guys know that? (laughs) But it starts with entrusting yourself to Jesus as Messiah. Because I think some of us want to obey, but we never want to entrust ourselves. And so it starts with our willingness to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, that we entrust ourselves to him. So here's how Jesus responds. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus says. Jesus has constantly made known who he is and where he is from. Jesus is the greatest evangelist and missionary ever, which seems like an understatement. But he came from the comforts of heaven to come live among us to seek and save what is lost. How many of you know who Zacchaeus is? He's a wee little man, right? And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus is speaking to Zacchaeus and he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You want to know why Jesus came? For you. So his mission is not one of comfort or of selfishness, but to do perfectly the will of the Father and provide salvation to a world who is lost. Verse 26, I have much to say in judgment of you, Jesus continues, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. So the question to Jesus is, who are you, and what does Jesus do? Let me tell you about my daddy. You want to talk about me? I want to talk about my father. Jesus is constantly in this conversation and many others pointing people back to the one who sent him. And hear me, in the kingdom, if we are a Christian, if we have entrusted ourselves to him, we are here to make much of Jesus and not much of us. We're not here for accolades. We are about our Father's business and exalting our God every opportunity that we get. Verse 27 This is a duh statement. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. Duh. This isn't surprising to us, says the reader, because over and over, the overarching theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus speaks about the spiritual realm, about the kingdom of God, while the teachers of the law and even sometimes the crowd only understood the physical and the literal. Verse 28. So Jesus says, When you've lifted up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. Jesus had come from heaven. He had always been in perfect relationship with the Father and with the Spirit, and he comes in the flesh from heaven, and he lives among us, and he is headed to the cross for our sin, not his sin, and he will be lifted up. And what Jesus is saying is that those who look to him high and lifted up as the sacrifice who brings rescue, those are the ones that are, have entrusted themselves to him. Or your choices you can ignore him. You get to see him for who he is in this life or in the next. But in this life, salvation is offered. In the next, judgment has already taken place. And how we answer the question about who we believe Jesus to be, who is Jesus to us, makes all the difference. Do we acknowledge the Son of Man? Do we acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and because of that we entrust ourselves to him? Or do we just want to cover our spiritual bases? So we'll give a little bit of lip service, or are we like the cultural who or the culture that is obstinate and stubborn who thinks they're too good for god and as blind as the pharisees who could not see the light of the world standing right in front of them so turn with me i'm sure you're in this book often turn with me to numbers chapter 21 <laughs> numbers chapter 21 it's left side of your bible numbers chapter 21 we're just going to walk through a few verses in this it's a great story if you understand what's happening here and you don't read it in isolation. The Israelites had been traveling with Moses. Moses, God had pulled them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they were traveling through the wilderness, and they weren't getting very far for very long, but they were starting to whine. Have you ever come out of a really bad situation, started going towards a good one, started to whine? Just me. Okay, me and Scott. Praise God. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 7 Here's where it starts. They, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, as you do. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us out, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Manna wasn't good enough for them. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. oh The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, here, I'd love to say that the application is this. Stop complaining. That's not the application, all right? I'd love for it to be that, but that's not the point. The point is that the Israelites are stubborn and selfish people who want things their own way. Does this sound familiar at all? I have four of these in my home. <laughs> and they are whining to Moses about God. And they're whining to Moses about Moses, and God brings judgment to them. But Moses intercedes, and God provides what? He provides mercy. He provides a way out. He provides an antidote for the poison of their rebellion. Don't miss this. Verse 8 through 9, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, a bronze statue, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked up at the bronze snake, they lived. This story in isolation for the person who doesn't understand God's character could be construed as God is mean or evil or unjust for sending snakes. But what this really tells us about our God is that he is just, that our God doesn't play games, but he also provides mercy. He also provides a way out. And so Moses creates the statue of a serpent. Anyone lost with that whole thing? See, notice that the means that God chooses to rescue the people from his own curse is a picture of the curse itself. Do you guys see that? The mercy is not preventive. I also want you to notice that. He didn't stop the snakes from biting anyone. Because here's the thing, Christians, you're going to go through hard things. You're either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or going back into one. We are a broken world. Hard things happen. They are happening. They are coming. But this is not our home if we're a resident of the kingdom of God. We, like the Israelites, are obstinate. We are sinful, complaining individuals who have a picture of the curse in the crucified Christ, who was put to death so that you and I could, be, could have life, and he was raised up high so we could look to him and we would live this is what this story is about. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come when the light of the world hangs on the cross, high and lifted up, so we can look to him. We can believe in him. We can entrust ourselves to him for life and life eternal. Jesus once again says he does nothing on his own but only what the Father has taught him what his Father wills. And Jesus' perfect submission to the Father's will is what makes it so you and I can come in contact with a perfect and holy God because in his perfection, no sin can come near it. So we get to come to God not in judgment but in relationship because of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. That's a good Father's Day right there. And again, Jesus boasts of the fact that he is not alone, that the Father is with him, that he is not acting alone based on his own will, but on the Father's will for this world. Check it. Jesus' lifestyle, his actions, his words always pleased the Father. I think we look at Jesus as someone who just stayed away from bad things. In fact, he entered into it at all times. And once again, I want to remind us that it's that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. But this wasn't just because he didn't do anything wrong, but he did everything right. And because of that, because of the perfection of his obedience, we are offered to be included in his perfect record, not because we are good, but because God is merciful and great. But in the words of Paul the Apostle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, We implore you, be reconciled to God. Because everything I'm preaching, everything that I get passionate about, everything I'm telling you about Jesus Christ is mute in your life if you have done nothing with the Son. If you have not repented, if you want nothing to do with him, if you just pay him lip service, all of this is worthless. Verse 30 of John 8. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Oh, this sounds like good news. As Jesus the word of God, spoke the word of God to the people and told this crowd that included the Pharisees about the kingdom of God. He said he was the light of the world. Many believed in him. Many took him at his word. Many believed and entrusted themselves to him. But next week, we'll see what that actually means for us. You can read ahead if you'd like. What it means to be his disciples. What it means to actually be his people but I want to end with this, and when a preacher says that, there's like 30 more minutes. (laughs) Will you look to Jesus as your sole means of rescue? Or are you still attempting to live a life on your own for your own glory, with your own priorities as the driving force for all that you do? Or would you repent? Would you bow your heart and your head and humble yourself under the lordship of and power of the God who created you, loves you, sustains you and has provided you the antidote for the poison which is a world that thinks that they can live a pretty good life and that will counteract the sin that we commit and the sins that we love. Would you be a person who would entrust yourself to Jesus and not die in your sin? Augustine, the great theologian, hundreds of years ago said, Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. A story is once told about a man named Ken Davis. He wrote a book called How to Speak to Youth about belief, and what it really does, and what belief really looks like. And he says it this way, in college I was asked to prepare a lesson to teach my speech class. We were to be graded on creativity and the ability to drive home a point in a very memorable way. The title of my talk was The Law of the Pendulum. I spent 20 minutes carefully walking through and teaching the physical principles that governs a swinging pendulum. The law of a pendulum is simply this, a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released, because of friction and because of gravity. When the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it'll make less and less of an arc, until it is finally at rest. This point of rest is called the state of equilibrium, where all the forces acting on the pendulum are equal. So what I did was I attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it to the top of a blackboard with a thumbtack. I pulled the top to one side and made a mark on the blackboard where I would let it go. Each time it swung back, I made a new mark. It took less than a minute for the top to complete its swinging and come to rest. When I finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard proved my thesis. I then asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. All of my classmates raised their hands, so did the teacher. That's good. He started to walk, the teacher started to walk to the front of the room thinking the class was over, but in reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large, crude, functional pendulum, about 250 pounds of metal tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. I invited the instructor to climb up onto a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against a cement wall. Uh Then I brought the 250-pound metal up to his nose, holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face. I once again explained the law of the pendulum that he had just applauded just a few moments before. And if the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room and return just short of the release point. Your face will be fine. After that final statement of this law, I looked him in the eye and asked, sir, do you believe this law is true? There was a long pause, huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip, and then weakly he nodded and whispered, yes. I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused momentarily and then started to come back. I never saw a man move faster in my life. He literally dove from the table, stepping around the still swinging pendulum. I asked the class, does he believe in the law of the pendulum? And the students all answered, no. Do you just have belief when it's not tested? And this is a hard conversation to have with you, church. Some of you were like, this is my first week. Why are you talking about this? Because you need Jesus. That's why I'm talking about this. But do you entrust yourself to Jesus or do you go through the motions? Do you believe until you are tested? Listen, no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself, okay? Can we just be real about that? So are you in, or is Jesus just a hobby that you pay homage to once a week? Father's Day uh, is hard for me. Just like Mother's Day, I don't have either of my parents anymore. They've both, they have both died. And my father, the Christmas before he passed away in June, so December, uh, we had a great conversation. It was very encouraging to me because it was the first time in my life I was... I was I had just turned 30. It was the first time in my life that he ever told me he was proud of me. And it meant a lot to me. And I'm very grateful I got to have that conversation with him. And then a few months later, I got to sit in his living room and I got to tell him about Jesus and I explained to him the facts of Jesus Christ and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the fact that we can entrust ourselves to him for salvation. And my dad put his hand out and he said, Tim, I don't want to believe. And this, just a few months later, He died. And in that moment, as, God, as I cussed at God, if I'm real and I'm honest and I always am, I was so angry at God that God would allow my dad to die without him. And in a very subtle, soft impression, not a voice, I don't know what he sounds like, probably Morgan Freeman, <laughs> he said, Tim, heaven is real and hell is real. And those who want me, get me. Those who truly want me truly entrust themselves. They get what they want. But if you want nothing to do with me, I'm so good, I'll still give you what you want. I won't force myself upon you. And so it was in that moment that I had this release of anger, this realization that God is God no matter what we do, and that he loves me and he even loved my father, but my father wanted nothing to do with my God. And so this day is hard, but it's also very fulfilling in the fact that I know I have a relationship with my good, good father, my perfect father, who never hurt me, never ignored me, and has always been there for me. So I want to encourage you today, repent, change direction, stop living life for yourselves. Point back to the Jesus that maybe for some of you is standing at the door and knocks. Maybe it's just because you've walked from him, but the great thing about my God is soon, no matter how far you walk away from him, as soon as you turn around, he's right there to meet you. And some of you have been trying to self-justify. Well, I come and do this, and I know all these scriptures, and I do this, and I do that. None of that matters. What matters is who is Jesus to you. Let's pray.